This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I tell people headshots are hard to make. Because anything that we know so well, that we've like internalized and know how to read so well, people think that they can do it, but the moment you try, it will fail spectacularly. The best thing to say is try it. <laughs> Just try it, you know? Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, Ramon Alam. And we just heard a few words of wisdom from this week's guest, Paul Mpaji Sapuya. Ruman, who is Paul Mpaji Sapuya and what drew you to interviewing him this week? I'm not sure that I can pinpoint where I first encountered Paul's work. I'm fairly certain that it was one of those small gay magazines, like one of those tiny print magazines you find in a certain section at McNally Jackson. And I remember seeing these images of, you know, mostly queer men, not exclusively men, not exclusively queer, but just sort of beautiful, young, queer folks. And there was something really striking in the approach that Paul was taking to portraiture. It was very stripped down. It was very, um, it was naked in a sort of literal sense sometimes, but there was something very honest and intimate about his portraits that felt very different in that particular cultural moment. And there was something so arresting about that work, his, and he has such a beautiful name that it lodged in my consciousness. I sort of knew who Paul was. And in the years since I would have first encountered that work, which was probably 2006, 2007, Paul has established himself as a very successful fine artist. It is interesting how, you know, you can encounter work that's just kind of like going against the aesthetic grain and that immediately can make this like just huge impact on you as you're looking at it. I think, you know, I didn't really get into this with Paul because it's not necessarily fair to take your own critical interpretation directly to the artist and say, well, what do you think? But in my estimation, Paul's interest in simplicity kind of foreshadowed a cultural interest in simplicity. If you think about Kinfolk magazine, for example, and the ethos of, um, you know, a simple mason jar full of maple syrup that you've tapped yourself or something like right. that. I think that there was something in the culture in that sort of post 9-11 moment where we valorized honesty and simplicity. And Paul's work feels to me of a piece with that cultural bubble. Well, I can't wait to hear more about him and his process. Let's take a listen. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. 
Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Imagine you've met someone at a party and they ask you, hey, what do you do? What's your answer? I think I, what would I say? Maybe I would say I'm an artist. That's probably it. I'm curious about why you would say artist as opposed to photographer well when you say you're a photographer people think you're for hire yeah it's different for everyone and it's not to it's not like that there's a hierarchy you know in the grand scheme of things but i think it's very clear to say that i'm an that i'm an artist i don't even like in bios and things like that for people to say photographer i'm an artist who works primarily with photography um but there's more to it than that. So I'll, I'm going to take a stab at describing the first work that I encountered of yours, which I think is work that you were producing when you were still quite young, um, probably just after finishing your undergraduate years at NYU. What I see as sort of the prototypical work of that period of time were sort of portraits of beautiful people, mostly young, mostly people who read as queer, whatever that means to the audience often in states of undress or sort of, you know, sometimes posed really classically, but sometimes in this sort of state of play where the image isn't really showing their whole body. And often you, the photographer, are present in the image. Sometimes you're wielding your camera, sometimes you're not. And so the pictures feel very personal. And the second body of work that you were doing in Los Angeles and then you returned to New York to show takes those initial portraits as a starting point but it has you re-photographing them inside your studio, sometimes with a reflection of yourself, sometimes, you know, placed on a mirrored surface or whatever. So they become increasingly abstracted and they're just sort of slices of body. Is that right? So, yes. the I would say that the work from 2005, 2004, until about 2010 was pretty straightforward portraits. They were made in my kitchen and living room in the house I was living in in Brooklyn and then eventually in my bedroom um which became a recurring backdrop and yeah it was people close to me I want to talk a little bit about those early portraits I want to talk about the work you were making in your 20s I guess and I guess the first question I have for you is you were so very young then and do you feel now that you're older the youth in that work? Or do you feel that those early portraits that really first catapulted you to critical attention were your first mature artistic statement? You know, okay, so when you're, when you're 23, and you're making portraits, and they're getting seen and published, everyone wants to, you know, there's a whole kind of like world around that stuff. There's the there's the 25 under 25 lists. There's the, you know, features on new artists, there's a lot of writing around youth that youth was the idea about it and i always and i i remember saying at the time my work is not about youth i'm young i'm making work with the people that are around me i imagine as i get older 
the we will all get older together. Um, and the work, you know, at that time, most of the portraits were people in my um, in my social circle. We were in our early twenties, but there were also friends who were in their thirties and forties, and even up to their fifties. In that work, um, like you said, the images read as queer. Um, I mean, at the time, the language I was using was gay, you know, but yeah. that doesn't mean that the subjects themselves all are or were. Um, what I could say about it is that everyone in the work had some connection to this New York Williamsburg of the post-September 11th gay, largely gay scene. Um, and so that also includes people who are not, but we are in the same orbit, if that makes sense. So when you look at a portrait by Avedon or Annie Leibovitz, and you can't necessarily identify the subject, but there's an authority or a sense of celebrity or sense of power inside of those figures, the presentation of the figures, everything about the composition of the photograph implies to you that this is you're looking at a portrait of a powerful or celebrated person. And in your early portraits, there's a sense that the subject is not something you're looking at on a pedestal, although sometimes you sort of literally are on an object in your studio, um, but that there's an interplay between you behind the camera and them in front of it. Those are good examples. Like Richard Avedon and Annie Leibovitz are photographers. They're not artists. Yeah. And again, it's not to knock it, but it's like, those are commissions. They're paid to take yeah. pictures of those people. Um, and so the thing with those early portraits was we're not doing anything except having a conversation, either at my kitchen table or in my the downstairs living room of that place in Brooklyn where I'd taken everything off the wall so we'd have a clear space or sitting on the edge of my bed. I mean, because also it's like, if thinking about like all like a lot of the photography from the late nineties, early two thousands, even the stuff that I was really influenced by, you know, when I was uh, a teenager in the nineties, was like super dramatic, like hyper dramatic. You know, it's like, you know, all of the sort of like David LaChapelle stuff that I just yeah. like loved back in um, in the mid nineties. And so I was trying to make work like that as like a young little homosexual in my teens and early twenties, and so. You know, but I, when I began that work, I realized, okay, you know, I, I really had to throw everything out because I had to say, well, I just want to reduce this to the thing that, to figure out why I'm making pictures, um, that in that moment of being young and in New York and having a first group of queer friends, it's organized, it is, that, that space is organized around this sort of like unfixed or sort of like very, um, open to potential set of, of attractions and curiosities. And so, you know, we kind of had this thing where all of the work was photographed as if we were dating or flirting or hot, were in a relationship or could be. It was basically removing a hierarchy between platonic or romantic or flirtatious and erotic photographs. I just wanted to put that at the forefront. And then, the, you know, and then it's just we're having a conversation. So we're just not doing anything except being present. 
you're also removing a traditional barrier between model and artist, even if you talk about sort of like portrait painters, like by putting yourself within the frame or by establishing a sense of play between yourself and the subject, I think that's why those photographs feel so striking because they feel like documents of an intimacy that we can't entirely understand, but we're trying to read. Yeah. So in those early ones, you know, I'm, I'm making the portraits in the same place that we're hanging out maybe two days before having dinner and, you know, friends are over for beers. You know, it's not like a lot of those early work because they're cropped to they're pretty much head and shoulders busts. A few years in, I sort of like pull back and start to reveal the edge of a table that we're sitting at or the edge of, or the horizon of the bed. People thought they were studio photographs because I was using a cheap strobe mono head that I got from Adorama on 18th street. And I was making, and part of that was because all, a lot of, all the photographs were being made in odd hours around jobs, day jobs. But um, so it was a way to remove the, the uncontrollable factors of lighting, you know, by like needing right. to make portraits at like 9 p.m. on like a February in New York where it's pitch black, you know. But then around 2005, I began working in a more structured arts nonprofit. I worked for Creative Capital off and on from 2005 to. 2009 I think and then I went to the Joan Mitchell Foundation and I was a pro I became a program director there working on um, on some programs to increase their engagement with their grantees um, mm. at the time I don't know if they still have this MFA grant program for recent um, MFA graduates as well as we were beginning a program for older artists who were documenting, to begin process of documenting their work and their legacies, which I found really interesting. Um, I've always been like archives, databases and things like that was something that I worked on for both organizations. And then there was a lot of post Katrina support programs going on in New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. And then the last years, maybe the last three years in New York were really, were really hard. Um, and then you left you left to pursue your MFA, is that right? Yeah, I had to, I, I knew I had to get out. Um, I mean, because this is the thing I think it's, it's always really important to say is that because it came as a shock when I left New York because everyone said, oh, I thought you were doing so well, everything is so wonderful. And I was like, I've been broke. I can't afford to pay for, for dinner and groceries. And I'm biking around everywhere and I still have my trusty bike with me. It's the one thing that's gotten me through. But, you know, yes, it was fun, but it's also because I couldn't afford a Metro card. So the period that we're talking about when you were sort of freelancing around and producing your early photographs, you had had quite a bit of early success. I mean, that's certainly when I would have first learned your name. Like, so there is, a, I guess there is a gap, a gulf, really, between the perception of somebody who's like, oh, that's an artist whose name I know he must be doing all right. And you're, you're telling me today, two decades later, oh, I couldn't afford to buy dinner. Yeah, I mean, and so th those early portraits that we're talking about, I was like working. Um, but at that time, you know, that was all, I graduated undergrad in 2004. Um, you know, in the years following that, it's like you're seeing fellow like people with BFAs or, you know, getting solo shows in Chelsea. Like this is the moment when it's like when you, 
when all the art news is talking about collectors going to like grad studios at Columbia and Hunter and buying up everything, there's this really unhealthy idea that, that like, oh, at any moment, the next thing that happens, I'm just going to be supporting myself as this artist. And then the crash happened in 2008. And a lot of friends who were working for um, big name artists are getting laid off. And yeah. so I think that was also a really interesting moment to kind of to see which is helpful for me right now keeping in mind that these highs and lows are all are just so tenuous um or ideas of monetary success are so tenuous but um also you know i would point out that the early work which i think remains really interesting and is clearly foundational for the work that ensued was born in some ways, as you're saying, out of privation, out of the necessity to be imaginative that it's 9 p.m. on a February night and you've got to figure out how to light a room to take a picture of someone who you happen to have an hour with them. So I think sometimes an artist might yearn for freedom but actually require some kind of constraint on that freedom to produce something. Yes, and I... Maybe at some point I wanted to be able to rent a photo studio and to shoot stuff there. But when I realized I was limited to my space and a very sort of like simple form of lighting and setup, I was like, okay, what can I do with that? And I pushed it and I pushed it. And I think, and I I sort of lost track of why I was bringing up the um, sort of overtop glamour late 90s type photography is that when that work first got out, it's because people were saying, what is this really strange sort of pared down photographs and people often describe that we looked a little bit sad but like comfortable and intimate and I remember this a feature in the New York Times style magazine and it was and it was really just talking about how suddenly these images got out and people started it like marked a turning point in which sort of like simplicity was the thing but for me it wasn't just sort of like an aesthetic it may have come out of me wanting to kind of get rid of the things that were distracting or just seemed like Mm -hmm. piling on top but it was really an opportunity to go much more deeper in terms of like of of thinking about just that connection we'll be back with the second half of ruman's conversation with the artist paul mpaji sapuya after this One of the things we'd love to do with this show is help solve your creative problems. Whether it's a specific challenge about your work or a bigger question about inspiration or discipline, send them to us at working at slate.com. If and when we can, we'll put those questions to our esteemed guests. Ruman, before we go back to your interview with Paul Mpaji Sapuya, there's a few artists you're talking about in this episode quite a bit. So I thought maybe we could just pause for a moment and in case our listeners aren't or don't think they're familiar with one of them who looms kind of large, we, we could talk about him. And that is, of course, David LaChapelle. What is distinct about LaChapelle's work and what makes it quite different from Sapuya's, even if he's a kind of influence at the same time? If you don't know his name, you probably do know his work. David LaChapelle's photographer whose celebrity work from the 1990s 
was really kind of emblematic of that period in the popular culture. If you think about a photograph he took of Britney Spears that appeared on the cover of Rolling Stone, she's holding a telephone and cradling a stuffed Teletubby. La Chapelle also took a a photograph of Eminem for the cover of Rolling Stone. Eminem is nude. He's cradling a lit stick of dynamite sort of at his crotch. La Chapelle's work was all like that. It was really stylized and elaborate. There was a lot of color. And often there were large casts of people, lots of models and these really elaborate sets. And you hear in this conversation, Paul and I bonding over a particular set of photographs from 1995 that La Chapelle shot for the English magazine, The Face, of a really beautiful young Leonardo DiCaprio. It was a cultural touchstone for gay guys my age. Amazing. Well, let's rejoin your conversation with Paul Mpaji Sapuya and learn more about his creative process. So you mentioned, like, in your youth, like, looking at those uh, David LaChapelle photographs. David LaChapelle as a photographer who was very active in uh, when you were probably in high school, right? So you would have seen those images, very, very stylized images, usually celebrity portraits, but often like fashion shoots with, you know, a big cast, a very like complicated set. Often there was some sort of digital manipulation in play. Your photography kind of rejects manipulation, that's true. Yeah, there's. I, I don't do any digital manipulation. Everything is in camera. The most that I'll probably do is make sure the image is color balanced. And and if my hand was askew or I didn't set up the tripod correctly, I'll just sort of like tilt it a little bit. But that's, you know, I would do the same thing in the dark room. Right. And, what's, and so there's something queer about David LaChapelle's pictures because they're big and broad. You know, they're like beautiful. I like seminal gay moment for me is Leonardo DiCaprio in the face when I was like 19 years old, you know? I think he has a black shirt on and it's unbuttoned and his hair is a little bit wet. And yep. I think there's a pink yep. surface and there's even a knife in it. <laughs> I like will never forget, you know, getting Rolling Stone in in the mail and that first portrait of Britney Spears in it, or like those portraits of Lil' Kim. I mean, when I was 16, 15 or 16, there was a show of La Chapelle's work at Tony Shafrazi Gallery and when it was still in Soho. And we, there was a family trip to New York and the one thing I wanted to do was to go see that show. And it was when those portraits of Amanda Lepore as um, Warhol's Maryland's we're up. Oh my god! I'll. I, but you know, it's like it's. I, I feel like La Chapelle also when those Matthew Barney sort of like grand scale works were also happening in the early two thousands. They're really seductive, and as a young photo student, I kind of internalized that as the goal of making work that it required all this production. You know, like Gregory Crudes and all of this stuff, and. Mm-hmm. And like you said, the limitations, it's like I had to look at what I had, what was close to me and what I could work with and make the best of it rather than, you know, I I had my attempts at making over the top photo shoots and they were not good. I'm glad I had some really good crits from um, and feedback from uh, my fellow students and some of my undergrad professors who I'm really good friends with now. But, you know, I've been trying to think about that a lot now um, as being a teacher, you know, being an associate professor and working with students this past spring quarter during COVID, you know, and it's 
we all had been, you know, forced to retreat to these very limited circumstances and, and places. And we really just have to look at what do we have to work with. The current work, the the work that you're producing in this moment or the work that you showed in Los Angeles earlier this year at an exhibition that was unfortunately derailed by, by COVID-19, is work that interrogates the studio as a physical space. And there's still... The presence of the body is still felt, uh, sometimes in a, in a full-figure portrait, sometimes in just the presence of the artist's hand. But you seem to be talking very specifically about something that may not be immediately evident to the audience, um, which is a queer legacy of a different kind, a, a different kind of queer photograph than the kind that David LaChapelle was producing that had such an effect on both of us when we were teenagers. Can you talk about what that sort of queer history is that's bound up in these photographs that are talking about studio space? It's the photographer's sort of privileged, intimate position of looking, uh, you know, the 19th century going underneath the dark cloth. There's this like genre of French little car. I think they're like carte de visite or something, you mm-hmm. know, some little things like that from the 19th century that I, that I came across years ago that, are really playing on that there's this there's it's like a scene where there's a man who is a photographer and a woman who is the subject being photographed because that's the way it always was <laughs> and she says to him if my husband is pleased with the photograph I'll let you take a picture of my cat and there's like a cat next to her but you for those who know french La Chatte is, you know, and so the, you know, the photographer going under the dark cloth was always, uh, you know, from, from its inception was kind of playfully analogized with um, a man being able to look up a woman's crinolines and voluminous skirts, right? Um, and so thinking about that, that space, but also this, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of like also anxiety, I think, around the in writing around photography, photo history about desire and erotics because I think, you know, photography is a technology of producing images in a way that that is so bound with what we desire to see. Photography isn't a natural art that just sort of appears from somewhere, right? Right. It's a technology. So, I mean, what do you... And, and you're teaching students now, right? And so every every one of us is carrying a camera around in our pockets most of the day. So what's the distinction for you as an artist who's using this technology to create art between the work of art and the snapshot? Like, how do you resolve that tension for young people or for people who look at a photograph and say, well, I could do that. I could take that. Uh, (laughs) The best thing to say is try it. (laughs) Just try (laughs) it, you know? I mean, and I think you could say that it could be a headshot. I mean, I tell people headshots are hard to make a good headshot because anything that we know so well that we've like internalized and know how to read so well, people think that they can do it. And that, but the moment you try, it will fail spectacularly. Um, I think even in the own images that I, that I make, there's a lot of attempt and failure. Um, but yeah, when I talk about technology, I'm interested in the idea of like a productive technology. Um, it's something that is developed and then is attuned to um, and bound with our desires for a type of outcome. But when it comes to like technology, like for me, I am really firmly against teaching digital manipulation because what 
it often becomes in terms of foundation is it becomes a way to correct or to quickly resolve something that should be figured out through time, effort of remaking, reworking, observation, and trying again. So, um, you know, I want, for example, students, whether they're working digitally or an analog, to know precisely how to control their um, image-making device, whatever is at hand, whether it's the shutter speed, the aperture to get the precise exposure, rather than taking an image, it not working out, and then how do I use Photoshop to fix the image? I'd love to go just way back to your own youth. We've talked about your experiments in portraiture and now your sort of investigation into the notion of studio and space. But I'd love to talk about how you yourself first came to photography and what it is well, about the medium that excited you then and excites you projects now. and things, painting, drawing as a kid, taking painting classes or doing ceramics and things in school. You know, it's like as a kid, sometimes you do things and then people are like, oh, that's what you do. Um, But I didn't ever think about being an artist. I mean, I wanted to be. I remember from like being in fourth or fifth grade all the way through maybe my sophomore year of high school, I wanted to be a computer scientist. Um, And I was really into programming and... I mean, when I mentioned things like database development, like that's sort of the lingering aspects of it, which is really helpful considering the work that I do. There's a lot of archiving and databasing of information. But that's, you know, I never considered being an artist. Um, but my the draw to photography was, I think, curiosity, but also just sort of like burgeoning adolescence and kind of like thinking and working through coming out. And so when I talk about my you know, this uh, coming to photography through pop culture, whether it's La Chapelle or, you know, magazines like The Face, um, Out or whatever, it was, that's what my draw to photography was. It was through that kind of like voraciousness of, like I was, at one point I had a basement full of magazines. Like I was a voracious magazine collector of fashion magazines of gay magazines and things like that and so um that's what my influence was and then finding out that there was a world that i could make that a job you know i thought okay i I can be a fashion photographer like i wanted to be a fashion photographer and i wanted to go to new york and i wanted to like find my entrance to that world but it when i was in high school i took a photo class it was sort of like one of those pre-college photo classes um, at UC Riverside and I took it because I wanted to learn black and white photography but also I did not get along with my high school art teacher (laughs) and I refused to take a class with him so I had to take the credit so we found this class Our neighbor across the street, we lived on this cul-de-sac, and um, my mom's doctor lived across the street, and um, her husband was a photographer, and he had darkroom equipment. And so he let me use all of this stuff, and we set up a darkroom in the garage at my mom's house. And so that is where um, 
my foundation for it all kind of came from. And then um, someone at UC Riverside was, you know, said, oh, you could go to New York. NYU has a really great photo program. And that's what got in my head. I was like, I'm going to New York. At, at 16, I decided I'm going to New York. And I moved there at 17. And I thought I would never, ever leave. But circumstances changed and <laughs> I'm back in L.A. <laughs> And have you been working during this period of quarantine? I know, for example, um, I forget the is it I forget the name of the gallery where you had the show in the spring and uh, Vielmetter. Vielmetter, and uh, so I know that that was like a big show of of a body of work that you've probably been waiting to really send out into the world for some time. Are you working now on something? Are you working on something different? Are you continuing your investigation into sort of studio? Or are you just kind of riding out the pandemic as the rest of us are? Yeah, so that show, which was my first solo show at Villa Meadow Los Angeles since I've been working with them for the past year and a half, or maybe a little over a year and a half, opened on March 14th, and that was the day that the stay-at-home orders were announced for Los, for California. Um, so the show has kind of felt like in limbo, and I've described it to friends as sort of feeling like, you know, when a a pharaoh or like an Assyrian prince or like someone kind of gets all this stuff together and then it just gets buried and entombed. Like the show feel like it, it all came together. I worked on it for years and then it was installed and then everything shut down and it's still up. I don't know how long for, um, but it's been months and it's, it's, there's this strange like pu- public, not public embalmed entombed exhibition on view things that I would have been working on for this upcoming spring 2021 and the fall beyond have all disappeared or been postponed. So it's a weird moment for working. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Ruman, it is notoriously difficult to talk about visual art in anything approaching concrete terms, but I feel like you and Paul were really able to do it. And I was very interested in his reserving of the terms art and artist for explicitly non-commercial, non-commissioned work. I feel like um, I admire this because it really goes against the popular grain where we're supposed to use those terms or, or as we do on this show, the term creative in a kind of broad tent way. What did you make of that? 
Oh, well, that's very generous of you to say. I did worry about fixing Paul's work in language, right? The work itself is beautiful and it's complex, much more complex than I think it seems at first glance. And I wasn't sure that I had a language for how to explain that. Certainly, in a way, you need to see it. And this is a podcast and that's just sort of a challenge of this particular form of journalism or inquiry or whatever you whatever you want to call what we're doing here. But I think my approach was just to talk about what you're seeing, what you're looking at. And then, of course, hearing the artist himself describe it is illuminating. And I think it's very interesting that Paul holds on to the term artist for as, as a way of describing what his endeavor is. And I think it's important. And I think he's he's not incorrect. You know, when I asked him about Avedon and Leibovitz specifically, there's artistry in what Annie Leibovitz does. There's artistry in what Richard Avedon did. But it's clear in Paul's estimation that their approach was to do something journalistic by nature and that Paul's approach is to do something artistic by nature, that Paul is telling the story. It's not the photograph telling the story. And I think that is an interesting distinction. Totally. You know, maybe it's because I'm middle-aged now and working on my second book, but I I was also struck by a thing that he talked about that I think affects artists across disciplines There are so many mechanisms to support and promote young and early career artists. There's a 40 under 40 list in just about every field, including fiction. There's emerging writers grants. Um, You know, this big debut novels will often get a kind of press attention that that same novelist second work might not. But the mid-career can be a a hard, barren place when it comes to outside institutional support, even though it often makes up the bulk of an artist's, you know, actual work. You're about to publish your third book, which I think makes you mid-career, right? Is this something you think about? I do, of course. I think that, as you say, there's a lot of institutional support for youth or for novelty. And While it is not uncommon, or maybe it is uncommon, I don't know, but you do sometimes encounter a very young artist like Paul, who was very young when he was producing those early portraits, with something that is very clearly raw talent. And I think in theory, these lists and these grants and these other kinds of opportunities are meant to support that talent, to help foster it and help it mature. But you can't just walk away from that. The onus is on the individual artist to maintain a sense of discipline and rigor about their own practice and to push themselves to grow. And I think when you look at Paul's current work, the work that he's producing now, or the work that was at Veal Metter Los Angeles in an exhibition that was unable to open fully because of COVID-19, you see a through line, you see a connection to that early work, but you see somebody who has really pushed themselves forward. And that's hard to do. And that's something that you kind of have to do on your own because... As you say, it's harder to get on those lists of like 45 writers who are 45 years old. I don't think anybody really cares when you're no longer shiny and new. Right. Granta should do a 50 who are 50. Yes. You know, right. That would be my, my one shot at glory. And another thing that affects that transition from early to mid-career is, of course, money. And I was very happy to hear you both talk quite honestly about it. Paul Mpaji Sapuya had this kind of incredible early career success. And, and a lot of people assume when you have that early career success, it's like, all right, you're set. You just do your thing now. But that success did not actually translate into enough money to live 
on in New York. He always had day jobs. There were times he had trouble making rent, uh, and he even went and got his MFA after he had already made a name for himself in order to be able to support himself with teaching and so on. It's kind of remarkable to hear Paul speak so frankly about that. I do think there can be a huge gulf between the esteem in which an artist is held and their ability to survive, especially when you're talking about artists who live in expensive coastal cities. And I didn't ask, right? Paul kind of brought money up organically. And the reason I didn't ask is because it's often sort of uncouth to talk about money. But being on some magazines' lists of hot artists under 30 doesn't actually pay the rent. Right. It's just like how you can't buy your meals with internet exposure. Yeah. (laughs) Paul has a very different life now. He teaches. He doesn't live in New York. His income is stable and so forth. Do you feel like that life transition corresponds with the transition in his work? You've said that as his career goes on, his his work gets different. What, What do you see as the change in it? And how do you see those things interrelating? I wonder if the stability has afforded Paul the liberty to continue to investigate what he is drawn to, right? So the ability to derive an income from teaching or indeed from the sales of his art is probably a stabilizing factor and means that he doesn't need to be dabbling in the work of a commercial artist. He's allowed to sort of follow what he wants to follow. And I think when you see the current work, you see an artist who is still exploring queer desire. In the current work, it may be less obvious than in the early work. And I don't mean to use obvious as a sort of negative quality, right? But the early portraits show beautiful people and they have a particular kind of erotic charge. Those people are often undressed, right? The photographer is in the frame and he himself is often undressed. The new work has this interest in mirrors and in backdrop and the obscuring of the body and the creation of small space within the confines of a larger space of the artist's studio. And it is also erotic in a way that is very subtle. And I think you hear Paul articulate its relationship to photographic history that helps illuminate exactly what he's up to. Right. He definitely seems to be an artist who knows who and what he is. And part of that is also recognizing that there are artists like David LaChapelle whose work he admires and feels influenced by even if his own work is completely different from that. And he tried to do a kind of La Chapelle style work and it didn't work. He had to kind of accept the artist that he is. I feel like I'm a very kind of different writer from maybe the writer I would want to be if I had control of the universe. Among other things, I primarily read fiction and I solely write nonfiction, you know? Are you the kind of writer that you set out to be? Did did that experience of discovering that he's a different kind of artist uh, uh, speak to you as well? Yeah, I I hadn't thought about it until you framed it that way, but I think that is a very important point to make. I'm not the writer I set out to be in the least, and I think that there are artists who are other people's gateway drug, right? They seduce you into art, and then you sort of outgrow them or you become interested in something else. And it's analogous, I think, to the music that you listen to in your adolescence, right? Like, I still have a deep fondness for The Cure and The Smiths and Depeche Mode, but I'm not listening to them now. I knew it. I knew it was going to be those two bands. I just knew it. I think it's important to acknowledge that there can be these 
early acts of seduction by whatever it is, whatever you respond to. For Paul Sapoya, it was David LaChapelle, and that sparked his interest in photography, or that helped him articulate his own interest in photography. And it wasn't until he picked up a camera and sort of spent, you know, at this point, almost half of his life toying with that medium that he unlocked who he is as an artist. We hope you've enjoyed this show. If you have, please consider signing up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and you'll be supporting the work that we do here on Working. It's only $35 for the first year, and you can get a free two-week trial now at slate.com slash working plus. Thanks to Paul Mpaji Sapuya for being our guest this week. An extra special thanks to our producer extraordinaire, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week for a conversation between Isaac and this year's Pulitzer Prize winner for drama, the playwright, composer, and lyricist Michael R. Jackson. Until then, get back to work. Music.